Amen, church family. If you will take your Bibles and turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. Luke, chapter 9. Our text for today is verses 51 through verse 62. Luke 9, 51 through 62. Continue to look at God's inspired, infallible, inerrant word through the eyes and perspective of Luke, thankful for this truth. Begin reading in verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these ancient words and we thank you for their truth, and for their clarity. Lord, would you teach us today what we must know? Would you help us as your people to listen and to hear, to receive, and to follow you? For your glory, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want you to think about the last purchase you made. Major purchase, I should say. Last major purchase. You may, maybe a house, a car, something on that scale. Think about the steps that you took in that purchase. Considerations that were involved. Typically, one of the biggest factors in making a purchase is whether or not we can afford it, whether or not it's in our price range. And especially on those major pur purchases, we often feel the weight of the cost, don't we? I mean, it, when you think about a house or a car, it's those type purchases that really shape and inform the rest of our budget to some degree, impacts it at least. Having a house for most is the most costly expense we make. You feel the weight of that, don't you, in a budget? Whether you've purchased or you're renting, you have that payment, you have the insurance, you have the maintenance, you have the upkeep, the updates, not to mention the utilities. It's likely the most expensive item, except for your commitment to putting down roots, in your budget. Just had to slide that in. It's probably the most budget-shaping reality that you have. Even, we know the, the term quite well, don't we? House poor. Hopefully you're not house poor, but many people in this country and throughout the world are often house poor. You have nothing left because of how much it costs you each month to live where you do. And here in Maryland, it's not necessarily by choice. But you feel the weight 
of that necessary burden each and every day. Well, friends, I just want to ask you a similar question about cost. Do you feel the cost of following Jesus? Do you feel the weight of what that cost you? Let me just ask you this question. When was the last time you felt the weight or you experienced the cost of following Jesus? When you observe that in your life, truly, specifically, I want you to think about that. I want you to write it down if you, if you have a pen or pencil in your hand. When's the last time you felt the cost, that it cost you something to follow Jesus? When was that? What was that experience like for you? What does it cost you this week to follow Jesus? What does it cost you this morning to follow Jesus other than maybe some extra sleep? What was the impact in that relationship? What was the impact in your budget? What was the impact in a decision you had to make? Friends, following Jesus requires a cost. And today, we're going to continue to look at that cost. Today we're going to further consider the cost that comes with being a disciple of Jesus Christ. As we come to Luke 9.51, Luke 9.51, as observed by so many, is a turning point in this gospel narrative. It's a turning point in Luke's account. We read there that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That, that line right there, that he set his face to go to Jerusalem, is a transition in this gospel. The GPS is now set for Jerusalem, and he is about to make his way to Jerusalem. Not directly. He'll get there eventually, but, but that's, that's the commitment that he has. Again, it's an important verse for us because it clarifies, further clarifies, the purpose for which Jesus came. Jesus had primarily been ministering in Galilee in the north. If you were to look at a map, friends, if you, some of us have maps in the back of your Bible. They're not inspired, right? But they're there, they're helpful. So it's, it's useful to sometimes look at a map even if you're not geographically inclined. It helps you understand the text. So Jesus has primarily been spending his time in the north, in Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee in that area, doing ministry in that region. And Jerusalem is to the south of that, right? I don't know if the miles are the same. It's kind of like being here versus being in Waldorf. He's been in Waldorf for a season, and now he's about to make his way here to where we are. And so that's kind of what we're looking at, a north to south kind of journey. And it's important for us to understand that because of what's going to transpire later in the text. Now you need to understand that, that Luke is going to spend considerable time in his gospel account, in his perspective that he's given us here, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's going to, consider, he's going to give us considerable amount of time unpacking further what it means to follow Jesus as Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem. Compare it to Mark's gospel. Mark spends one chapter taking us from the point where we are today to Jerusalem. He spends one chapter getting us there from where Jesus is now to Jerusalem. Luke spends 10. Luke spends 10 chapters unpacking statement after statement, parable after parable, 
Command after command of helping us understand what it means, helping his disciples understand what it means to be true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, most of what we are going to see, not all, but most of what we're going to see from here until chapter 19, when he gets to Jerusalem, is unique to the Gospel of Luke. Not entirely, but most of what we're going to see is unique to the Gospel of Luke. So the scene is set. Jesus' face is set to go to Jerusalem, and it's this driving point. It's this driving factor of what Jesus, as he conversed with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, as he discussed what would be accomplished in Jerusalem, his face is now set to go there. And in the meantime, as he makes his way there, he's unpacking for his disciples, for us today, all the considerations and commitments of what it means to walk with him and what it very well may cost us. The main theme from this point to Jerusalem is the theme of discipleship. And today, friends, we come to this text and we are reminded yet again just how costly, just how costly it is to follow Jesus. And what we're seeing here is Jesus bringing an awareness to that cost. Following Jesus is costly, and we, as his followers, need to know. We need to be aware of just what it may cost us as we follow him. Jesus reveals two challenges to his disciples in this text as they continue to follow him. And we're going to see that really these are two costs, we could say. Two costs of what it means to follow Jesus. Not the only two costs. These are the two that we can handle for today, and these are the two that we're going to look at in this text today. The reality of rejection and the call to sacrifice. We're going to unpack both of those. That it's going to cost us something to follow Jesus. And that's going to be how we respond amidst rejection and how we respond in what it would, may cost us or sacrifice, calls us to sacrifice in the midst of following him. Those are the two areas that we're going to look at this morning. Number one, following Jesus requires an attitude of mercy amidst rejection. Following Jesus is costly. What does it cost us? What does following Jesus require of us? It requires of us an attitude of mercy amidst rejection. You see that in verses 51 through 56. As he sets his face towards Jerusalem. Again, it's not as if he makes a direct beeline there. And so he's, verse 51 and then verse 52, he's there. There's a lot more to unfold and a lot more to unpack And we see here that we're told in verse 52 that he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Remember, he's in Galilee in the north, and now he's making his way south to Jerusalem, and the first place that they stop along the way is a village of the Samaritans. His ministry takes him into Samaritan territory. Now, it's important for us to recall the relationship and the history between the Jews and the Samaritans. It's important that we get that because I think it's an important indicator here. This text, verse 52 and 53, is an important indicator of what's going on really behind the scenes. Remember, in the Old Testament, after Solomon's reign, the nation of Israel splits into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And long story short, it's the northern kingdom that becomes in some ways synonymous with Samaria. Or we could say Samaria becomes another word to refer to the northern kingdom. 
So we're talking about this area in the north, just south of Galilee, but north of Jerusalem, part of the northern kingdom. And the history behind that is when the, when the, the nation split into two, you had the two kingdoms. And when the Assyrians attacked the northern kingdom, a remnant of the Jews remained in that region. Many were taken away as exiles, but some, a remnant, remained in the land. And at the same time, Assyria brought captives from other nations that they had conquered. Other nations, other non-Jews, they had brought captives from those, those battles, from those uh, situations, and, and brought them and resettled them there among the Jewish people, resettled them in that area. And so you now have uh, the northern kingdom conquered by the Assyrians, few Jews left, and other people from other nations who had also been conquered by the Assyrians now living among them as well. And this would eventually lead, you can read about this, by the way, in 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 24 and following. And this eventually leads to some, not all, but some of the Jews intermarrying with these resettled Gentiles, non-Jews. And it's that group of people that becomes known as the Samaritans. The Samaritans were really part Jew, part Gentile. Not only that, later on, the Samaritans would eventually identify a different place of worship other than Jerusalem. It would be at Mount Gerizim as the proper place, they would say, is the proper place of worship where Moses intended the temple to be built, but instead it got built in Jerusalem. And so they saw Jerusalem as an illegitimate place for worship. They had the right place for worship. And you could see how this continued to make the conflict and the division all the more serious. The Jews saw the Samaritan people as traitors. In fact, they would often refer to the Samaritans as half-breeds. Very harsh way to kind of criticize them. And the Samaritans would see the Jews as equally unfavorable. The, the hostility between these two groups of people was intense. So by the time you get to Jesus' day, it was common for Jews in the north, or even if they're in the south going north, or if they're north going south, they would not travel through Samaria, which you had to travel through in order to get to Jerusalem. They would go around it to the east. be like coming from Waldorf. Instead of coming right through Leonardtown, which would be maybe Samaria in our scheme, they would go through Calvert County and around and, and, and just completely bypass Leonardtown and Hollywood. It sounds ridiculous, especially when you're walking, right? Why would you not just go straight through? Well, they didn't want anything to do with the Samaritan people. That's the mentality that we're dealing with here when it comes to Jews and Samaritans. So the textual marker in verse 52 is significant. As Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem, he sends messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans. These forsaken people. It's a big deal. I think having this background is helpful because by the time we read verse 53, but the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem, we understand why. They did not see Jerusalem as the legitimate place. And said, oh, if you're one of those Jerusalem people, forget you. You know, we're not in. We have no interest in hearing anything you have to say because we have the right place of worship, not you. You see that, that context is important. What you see from the Samaritans is that Frankly, their prejudice comes out. And when the disciples saw and heard their response, we see in verse 54, specifically James and John, when they saw what was going on, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? 
And here in the disciples' hearts, you see, their prejudice against the Samaritans exposed. Now, while the Samaritans were clearly wrong in their perspective, and certainly wrong to reject Jesus and his disciples, it seems here, inspired words that we have to look at here, that it's the attitudes of the disciples that were in need of adjustment. These were committed followers of Jesus, and it was his followers that he wanted to help understand what it meant to truly follow him, what it would cost them to follow him. They needed a lesson in mercy. They needed a lesson in applying mercy even when they were standing opposed by those that they did not see very favorably. Several things that we see about mercy in this text that Jesus exposes here. First of all, he's helping them understand mercy, that that mercy tempers justice. Mercy tempers justice. The disciples want immediate justice. They want immediate judgment. They, They weren't able to handle this. Again, I think the background, the, 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 the division that, that's there in the background intensified this, this hostility, this response. And so, so you see that their immediate reaction was not one of mercy, but they're ready to call in for air support, literally. Now, we may find their response comical. Come on, James and John. I mean, really? It just seems comical, but, but it's not without some Old Testament background. Right? It's not without Old Testament background. In fact, in 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 1 through 16, the prophet Elijah literally calls down fire from heaven to consume representatives from King Ahaziah, king of Samaria. Why did Elijah call down fire from heaven to consume this king of Samaria? It was because of his failure to acknowledge the God of Israel. And so they likely pick up on that scene from 2 Kings, remember it quite well, who wouldn't? And they're like, hey, you want us to do the same? You you want us to get some fire from heaven, New Testament style, right? Now we know that Jesus had shown some Elijah-like characteristics. Some even confused him to be Elijah. And we know that from the Old Testament that Elijah was a type of Christ But listen, Jesus is not Elijah. He's not the same. While he may come in prophetic ministry in similar ways, and while the ministry of Elijah may point to to the ministry of Jesus in some similar ways, there were clear differences. His ministry was different. Indeed, his ministry was not one that would bring immediate judgment upon the wicked, but one that was going to be a demonstration of mercy and proclamation to the wicked. So, Jesus rebukes the disciples' desire for an Elijah-like firestorm from heaven, and they move on. Now, friends, we need to understand that it's, it's not as if Jesus never spoke of judgment. He did. He warned of judgment. He spoke to it very clearly. But this was not the time for judgment. That would come. This was now a time for, for mercy, um, a time for the gospel to, to be eventually clearly presented, but, but to lay that foundation even now. And so they simply move on. By the way, I want you to recall later on, as Jesus gets to the end of his ministry, he dies, he's resurrected, and he's preparing to ascend, and he's meeting with his disciples. You remember what he tells them in Acts 1.8? The reason I see that 
this, this, this is a demonstration of mercy is because of the plan of God. He says to the disciples, and you'll be my witnesses, where? Starting in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The redemptive plan of God included these people from Samaria who were not favorable, not seen favorably by the Jews, and Jesus reminds them of that, and he moves on, presumably, by the way, to another Samaritan village, but he moves on here to demonstrate mercy. This was not the time for judgment. There was still time for them to repent and to believe that he's the Messiah. It's part of God's redemptive plan. There's so much for us to to take away from all of this today. We too find that many in our culture and world will reject us. Many stand opposed to the Christian faith. Many reject our message. They reject our Savior. They reject anything that we would stand for according to the truth. And the temptation for us, quite frankly, if we're honest, the temptation for us can sometimes to be writing them off, desiring immediate justice. We know that judgment is coming. We know that it's, it's coming, and it's going to be a terrible day when it does. But friends, we're reminded here in this text that now is the time for mercy. Our responsibility as followers of Jesus Christ in a world that often stands opposed to us and hostile to us is to be agents of mercy, ministers of reconciliation, proclaiming the truth of who Christ is. In his commentary on Luke, the Bidiania Bile, pastor of Anacostia River Church, wrote, before we can be of any use to our cities, neighborhoods, and neighbors, we must learn to temper justice with mercy. We must. The church, friends, has been given a clear calling to love our neighbors and to persevere in gospel ministry. In the face of rejection and hostility against the Christian faith, the attitudes, friends, of many Christians can often be, sadly, like that of James and John, than of Jesus. One of the points that's easily seen from this encounter in Jesus' own rebuke to his disciples, it's it's this, it is very possible as Christ followers, it is very possible to have a great zeal for Christ and a zeal for the truth and yet demonstrate that by ungodly attitudes and actions. Our temptation amidst confrontation, our temptation against Amidst opposition and rejection, our temptation when our worldview is questioned and called to account is often a call or at least a desire for some sense of judgment. Yet our calling here we see as disciples is to persevere in the work of the gospel, knowing that now is the time for the gospel to go forth. Judgment is coming. But our responsibility is to be people of mercy. Following Jesus requires us to temper justice with mercy. We are to warn of the judgment to come, but we are not to call it down. We are to warn of it, but we are not to call it down. Retaliation is never the way of the Christian. Number two, a second point of observation about mercy 
is that mercy confronts our tribalism. Mercy confronts our tribalism. Most certainly, the prejudice that existed between the Samaritans and the Jews were part of the backdrop of this scene. I believe Jesus is intentionally exposing the fact that he also came and died for Samaritans, but he's also helping the disciples see that their their attitude and their approach to ministry must be tempered by mercy, and no matter how unfavorably people may be viewed in their eyes, they must understand that these are people created in the image of God and they're valuable to the Lord. See, there was this prejudice that lurked in the disciples' heart, and that came out immediately as they call for quick judgment upon this Samaritan village, and Jesus rebukes them for it. You know, there's a lot of talk today about the cancel culture. I think the disciples were part of a cancel culture in a way, weren't they? They're ready to cancel the Samaritans immediately. Immediately. Because of their refusal to receive Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I think this is yet another reminder to us that Christians are not immune to tribalistic tendencies. We are not immune to it. Sadly, our attachment to earthly tribes can often hinder how we view other people and how we love them who aren't part of our own tribe. If someone doesn't share your personal convictions or your political convictions or other kinds of things that you believe or they may have a different lifestyle than you or a different viewpoint than you or they see cultural things differently than you, we're often tempted to immediately cancel them right out. Amidst this talk of cancel culture, I am convinced that some of the most willing people to cancel others out are sitting in our churches. And what a sad indictment upon the people of God today. Christians canceling others out because of tribalism. Friends, I see Christians doing this to other Christians. Christians showing lack of grace and favor towards other blood-bought believers. And if we're willing to cancel other Christians out, how much more so are we willing to cancel out others who are in need of the gospel? Mercy calls us to check our attitudes and our hearts towards other people. And if we are not willing to do this, then we are not willing to count the cost of following Jesus. It's just that simple. To some degree, we're all guilty of this. We all will wrestle with this in some fashion or another. And we we can pick out examples in our own hearts and life where we're tempted to cancel people out because they're different or because they may believe or do different things and we have no room for mercy towards them. We allow these differences, large and small, to affect our attitude towards people and we ultimately believe they're not worthy of the gospel. God, help us to repent of such a prideful heart. Brothers and sisters, listen to this. The very ones you may struggle to understand and love the most, some of them are going to be co-heirs with you for eternity. You need to remember that. Some of the very ones you struggle to love and see favorably and are critical of and willing to cancel very quickly, many of them, some of them, are going to be co-heirs with Christ, with you. You're going to spend eternity together as family. God, help us 
to confront our tribalism. Another lesson about mercy is that mercy does compel us forward in obedience to the ministry that God has given us. Jesus rebukes them, and we're told in verse 56, they went on to another village. They, they back down from retaliation. They back down from calling down judgment, and they move on to another, presumably another Samaritan village. They accept the rebuke. They didn't argue with Jesus. They move on, and there was an opportunity still yet for these Samaritans to hear and believe the gospel. And sometimes we're going to stand opposed, oftentimes we're going to stand opposed in this culture, in this world in which we live, and we're going to be rejected. And how we respond to that rejection matters. Are we going to call down judgment? Are we going to call down justice? Are we going to call down the fires, the proverbial fires from heaven, so to speak? Are we going to understand that this world stands opposed to Christ and we're going to move on, still hopeful, that they will receive mercy in the future before that day of judgment comes. Something for us to consider. Friends, again, it's easy for believers to become just as hostile towards the world as the world is towards believers. It's right to be angry about sin and injustice in the world. We must be. We must confront these kinds of things, speak into those kinds of things. And I'm not saying we should never grow angry about sin and injustice and those kinds of things. But listen, we should while being burdened by the depravity that's on display in our world, yet be a people who are willing to move forward with the truth of God's mercy. Our response to depravity and brokenness and sin is not to call this fire down from heaven. As if we are agents of judgment, we are not. We are agents of mercy. Sadly, even Christians have resorted throughout history to violence as a means to respond to those who stand opposed to Christ. But listen, we're not compelled to violence. We're compelled to mercy. We're compelled to continue forward with our calling, our mission. And yes, friends, I know there will be many discouragements, many challenges, many confrontations along the way, but we must be a people of mercy, faithfully proclaiming a message of mercy concerning the Lord of mercy. We will stand opposed in this world. And friends, it's a cost you must consider. If you're not willing to engage in being opposed, you're not willing to follow Jesus. In this world, you will have tribulation, he tells us. Just as they persecuted me, they will persecute you. It's a cost you must consider. It's a cost you must be willing to embrace. And as you embrace it, understand that your reaction and your response to a lost and sin-cursed world is important. Following Jesus. It's costly. Number two, a second observation, the second observation from this text that we see is that following Jesus requires sacrifice over security. Following Jesus requires sacrifice over security. In verses 57 through 62, as they continued along their way, Jesus interacts with three different people here concerning their desire to follow him. It's kind of a recruiting trip of sorts. And what we see here in these interactions that Jesus has with these would-be disciples is that following Jesus is no casual affair. Discipleship is demanding. Jesus and his disciples continue along their journey. 
We see that others are saying, hey, we want to follow too. We want to join your group. But Jesus makes clear in these three different interactions what it will require and what we see here regarding sacrifice. Following Jesus requires sacrifice. There's, there's too many, too many fair-weather Christians in the world today. Christians used very, very loosely. They follow when it's convenient. They follow when it's comfortable. They follow when, when it doesn't interfere with other commitments. But if there's another commitment on the Lord's Day even, I'm going to go to that. Following Jesus costs you something, friends. Are you, are you willing to count that cost? Keep that question in mind that I asked earlier. What does it cost you this week to follow Jesus? What we see here in this call to sacrifice is several things that Jesus is exposing about this sacrifice that we need to understand. Number one is that we're called to sacrifice earthly comforts. 57 and 58, as they were going along the road, someone said, I will follow you wherever you go. There's this person that comes along and says, Jesus, hey, I'm in. I'm all in. I'm with you. Wherever you go, I'll go. But we understand in Jesus' response is following him will call, often call us to sacrifice earthly comforts. Notice he says, and Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the heaven or the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. We know that Jesus' earthly ministry was an itinerant ministry. He had no home, so to speak. And his day-to-day existence, especially throughout his earthly ministry, was often dependent upon the hospitality of others. Think about that. The creator of the universe was homeless in his own creation. Think about what that says about his humility and about the, the sacrifice he was willingly taking upon himself as the second person of the Trinity to walk this earth. Friends, what he's reminding this person and what he's reminding us here is that identifying with Jesus It may not mean you'll be homeless in a practical sense, although it may. We just never know. But it will often put you outside the normal comforts of life. It will often put you in situations and positions where you are having to give up certain comforts in order to follow him. Following Jesus means that we are called to live as strangers in the world. And yes, we will face hardships, Surely, we will face opposition. We will face difficulty and challenge after challenge. There'll be many times in our life where following Jesus is not comfortable. If you're here and you're not a Christian, but you may be thinking about the Bible, thinking about following Jesus, maybe you're watching on our live stream and you're considering what does it truly mean to follow Jesus. Friend, you need to know that it it will not be a comfortable journey. It is a gloriously rewarding one, but it is often not comfortable. Friend, I just remind you that, as I said just a moment ago, we see this modeled so perfectly in Jesus. You just think about why he came. The Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the one that is responsible for the creation of the world, the one who shares the full glory of God. 
humbled himself, left the comforts of heaven to live and sojourn in a chaotic and sinful world. Why? To ultimately be crucified on a cross. Talking about uncomfortable. God himself comes as a man, lives in this sin-cursed world in order to go to a cross to bear the sin of all of those who would put their hope in him. To bear the full wrath and weight of, and guilt of your sin. Jesus comes and he does that for people just like you, friend. And the hope of the gospel says that if we would turn and repent of our sin and turn from the ways of this world and put our hope in him, that our sin will be forgiven, that we'll be counted righteous before God, and that we'll have eternity of glory awaiting us. Friend, if you've never put your hope in this Savior, I would urge you today to believe in Christ. This is why he came. He came to embrace an uncomfortable life and die an uncomfortable death for people just like you. We're called to trust in him and believe in him. And friend, as his followers, as his followers, we will often face times of discomfort because we know we're strangers in this world. We sacrifice earthly comforts, but we also, number two, sacrifice earthly commitments. You see it in verse 59, 60. To another, he said, follow me. So it's interesting this time, Jesus initiates this conversation. He singles someone out and he calls them, two words, follow me. Follow me. But the person responded, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now that's, that's a new level. That's a new level. This guy requests to go and bury his father. There, there are many speculations about what the situation, has the father already died or was the father gravely ill? Or some even say he's not necessarily ill, but he's saying, let me get through caring for him and, and eventually I'll follow you. We, we don't know the exact circumstance. It's most likely that he's already passed the way the, the text, the urgency that, that we see reads. And he asked for a delay to bury his father I mean, seems like a reasonable request, doesn't it? Seems reasonable. Jesus, I want to follow you, but I've got some family obligations I need to take care of urgently. And Jesus responds, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. That sounds harsh. And what he's getting at here is the, is the posture of this man's heart. He's, he's helping him understand and he's helping us understand by extension that our commitment to Jesus must outweigh all other commitments. It must. He's not saying we should not attend funerals or that family is unimportant. We know better than that. He's not saying that. He's simply saying that God and his kingdom must take priority. The reference here to letting the dead bury the dead is confirming that point and is in essence saying let the spiritually dead, those without kingdom priorities, take care of that business. Your responsibility is the kingdom. 
Friends, it's just a, a call to us all that we need to understand that following Jesus means taking a hard look at what's truly important to us and determining if anything or anyone takes precedent over Jesus. Is there anything you're not willing to give up in order to follow Christ? Anything. Friends, we are called to sacrifice oftentimes earthly commitments, important commitments, good commitments for ultimate ones. Number three, we sacrifice not only earthly comforts and commitments, but we sacrifice other earthly obligations, relationships. We see this in the third encounter. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But, very similarly to the last one, but different. Let me first say farewell to those in my home. This person just simply wanted to go say bye. They didn't want to text it. They wanted to say it in person. I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus says to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus' response here is not so much a refusal to this request, but a warning. He uses a metaphor here to warn how dangerous it is to, to look back. This image of one who's plowing a field and, and one who's plowing a field must keep his or her eyes on on the task, on, on what lies ahead, because one glimpse away, one glance away, or to look backward might knock one off course and ruin the crop. Because we all have earthly commitments. We all have responsibilities that we are instructed to in the Bible to handle with wisdom and faithfulness. All of us have those. Again, he's not calling us to ignore the importance of human relationships and responsibilities in life, but rather he's getting at the heart of our motive, of our motive of why we would follow and what is it that we're willing to give up. You know, recall the parable of the sower? Different seed falls in different soils, and the one, the, the seed that, that fell among thorns. And that whole scene there is a symbol of how the cares of the world choke out the word. Isn't that a bit of what Jesus is getting at here? It's the, the cares of the world, simple things, good things even, choking out priority. Security in the world can often snuff out our willingness to sacrifice. The point here is simply a heart check, friends. Is there anything in your life that takes precedent over Jesus? Is there anything you're not willing to give up? Is there anyone, is there any place you're not willing to go? Is there any hardship you're not willing to endure? Is there any sin you're unwilling to confront? Any command you're not willing to obey? And friend, if Jesus is truly your treasure and he's truly your hope, then the answer is no. Is it going to be easy? No. Is it going to seem impossible? Yes. Is there anything you're unwilling to give up in order to follow him? Following is costly. Following Jesus means there will be rejection. And following Jesus means there will be sacrifice. 
Brothers and sisters, the Lord has called us to follow him. Not to say a prayer, but to follow him. To follow him. To count the cost. I once heard somebody say it this way. Is, can you afford to follow Jesus? Is that in your budget? Because when we understand the cost that it takes, it will inform everything else we say and do. I said earlier, a house payment and responsibilities kinds of, kind of shapes and informs the rest of what we do in our budget. Friends, following Jesus, infinitely so. Infinitely so. Discipleship is not an emotional decision of one moment. It's the walk of a lifetime. People who are willing to count the costs, to face opposition with mercy, and to count the cost and sacrifice whatever it takes to follow. Whatever it takes. This will look different for each person, but friends, the overarching priority is the same. If you desire to follow Jesus, then you need to know the demand he makes on your life. May we all, by God's grace, be committed to persevering amidst rejection and by God's grace resolved to sacrifice whatever's needed to honor the King. Let's pray. Father, we know that we hear these words and they are strong and difficult to hear. But yet they are true. And they are words from you for our good. They are words we need to hear and be reminded of even today. And Lord, we ask for your help in receiving them and obeying them. Because Lord, we know that in and of our own strength we are incapable our tendency is to react, to retaliate, to be just as ungodly as the world is when we're rejected. And our tendency and our temptation is to be as comfortable as we possibly can be in this life. Father, would you help us to count the cost and to be a people who embody the truth throughout the way that we live our course of our lives, make our decisions the way that we view and treat others, and the way that we view and treat comforts. Father, would you help Redeeming Grace Baptist Church to be a people who put on display what it looks like to consider the cost of following you. We know that apart from you, we can't do that, and so we ask for your help, and we ask for your grace. God, help us, we pray, in Jesus' name.